This episode is sponsored by Aussie Travel Safety. Aussie is the best app for solo travel before and during a trip. The app has saved me hours of web searches for the basics like visas and public transit. And when I travel, Aussie sends me real-time alerts when if I go into an unsafe neighborhood or if there is a safety incident near me. I highly recommend Aussie Travel Safety for your next trip. You know, traveling long-term is tough. It's a psychologically challenging situation to push yourself into that new, into new places all of the time and meeting new people all of the time. And I think it has brilliant benefits for our well-being and personal growth and creativity, but it can be tough. And I think it's important to expect that there will be bad days, absolutely, and that's totally, totally normal. Hello passengers, this is your host, Luke Menares speaking, and welcome aboard to season six. We ask you to please fasten your headphones and enjoy this podcast in a comfortable position. Prepare yourself for listening to female travelers from all around the world, their stories, adventures, tips, and how they became the women they are today. Thank you for choosing the Solo Female Trailer Podcast. Enjoy your flight. Hi again and welcome to a new episode. Today we are discussing about travel and mental health and our guest for this episode is Dr. Charlotte Russell. She is a clinical psychologist and the founder of the Travel Psychologist Project. She has more than 12 years of experience in the psychology field and is currently working with adult clients with common mental health problems, including anxiety, trauma, low mood and difficulties with self-esteem. During the episode, we discussed about pre- and post-travel anxiety, travel burnout, out, and how to overcome other challenges solo female travelers might face while on the road. Without further ado, here's my interview with Dr. Charlotte. Dr. Charlotte, thank you so much for your time and thank you so much for being here with us to discuss this topic about mental health and travel. So I want to start with the first question, which is, in which ways should we mentally prepare for our trips? It's a great question. Um, And first of all, I'm going to thank you for having me on because it's really nice to be here and be able to provide some tips and advice for your listeners. So I think in terms of mentally preparing for trips, I think the preparation stage is really the key in terms of being psychologically prepared for our trips. And I think one of the key things that I want to get over to you and the listeners today is that we are all so different. We're all totally, totally unique. So the first step is to really think about and reflect on our own psyche and the things that we find difficult and the things that we find easier. And it's really important to, I suppose, plan your trips with that in mind. So, for example, if someone is an introverted person who may like social interaction but 
can feel quite drained by it. It's probably going to be a really terrible idea to be staying in hostels for months and months and months. So a lot of the travel advice online, especially for solo travel, and I guess traveling when you're a little bit younger and this idea of backpacking, a lot of the travel advice online is very one size fits all. I would encourage your listeners to think about their particular situation, knowing themselves what works for them, what doesn't work for them. And it's totally fine. We're all different. We all have different preferences and personalities. So I think the first thing is really about knowing yourself and planning your trip accordingly. Because if you know you're going to hate being surrounded by other people all of the time, it's a really bad idea to embark out on a journey when you're going to be spending all of your time in, in that kind of situation. So I think that's the key one to begin with. Okay, so knowing yourself and mm-hmm. planning your trip based on how much you know yourself. Like I know for myself, I did many trips where later on I found out that I am an introvert that just enjoys social interaction. So I was staying at hostels in my mid-20s and then after four days I was totally drained. Mm-hmm. So but that came from that trial and error as well. Absolutely. And it's it's a really good example because, you know, I think people often assume that introverted people, that means that you don't like social interaction. That's absolutely not the case, actually. I'm an introvert myself. I really enjoy social interaction, but I do find that a lot of it drains me. So I just need to bear that in mind when I you know, in how I live my life, because if I manage to have that bit of downtime and that bit of time to myself, and I'm, you may be the same if you're an introvert as well, I find that I enjoy those social situations much more. So if we know that about ourselves, we can plan accordingly. And I think it's really important not to assume that what works for other people is going to work for us. So I think that process of getting to know yourself is is really important. Yeah, as you said at the beginning, we are unique human beings mm-hmm. with our unique psyche. So it's yeah. not one size fits all. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if your listeners take away one thing from today, I hope it's that. Um, So the second thing, again, really important, building coping strategies beforehand. If you are someone that experiences anxiety in certain situations, which is most of us, it's really important to build strategies in advance. So things like relaxation techniques, meditation techniques, these things require practice. And I think a lot of people who I see and have seen over the years have tried relaxation or mindfulness and maybe it hasn't worked for them and they've concluded that actually it's not that helpful. But actually, if you use it when your anxiety is sky high, it's probably not going to be that helpful. It's something that you have to build in advance. So if you're preparing yourself for a trip or if you're preparing yourself generally for any challenge in life, which is something that we're all going to need to face at some point, it's important to build those coping strategies beforehand. So 
getting used to practicing meditation or relaxation on a regular basis. And then when you need to use it, when you are facing challenge, you'll have that tools in your toolbox. So it's a bit like mentally packing your suitcase before you, you get started. Mentally packing your suitcase. That's a great analogy. Also, the way I look at meditation is something that we should be practicing and building every day. Meditation practice, the way I look at it is like running a marathon, you know, it's just if I want to be physically okay to run a marathon, I would maybe start running 10 minutes a day or five minutes a day until I start progressing and I start doing longer and longer. Um, I've met a few women that they have never meditated and then they just want to go do a meditation retreat near Sri Lanka for 10 days. And there's like, it's very hard. And so, yeah, I, I understand because it's something that is a big leap that you wanted to take without preparing your brain for it. And also if you're, as you mentioned, if you're experiencing anxiety and if you have never meditated and out of nowhere you want to do it, it's not really going to help that much. I see more as a preventive tool. Would you agree with that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly. And I like your analogy to running. You know, we wouldn't expect to just be able to run a marathon immediately. It's about planning and building these good habits so that we're as healthy as we can be psychologically to face whatever challenges we're facing. So I think it's a good way to is to start using these strategies so that you have them. I was going to go with a second question about anxiety, but I don't know if you have any more points about this first question. So I think this may come up when we speak about anxiety, but I think planning for potential triggers as well. If you know in advance that you particularly struggle in airports, for example, thinking in advance about how you're going to manage that. And I really liked your episode on managing travel anxiety and some of the things that you suggested around distracting yourself, having lots of things to keep yourself busy, because actually in an airport situation, it's hard because there isn't really an escape route, is there? So I think distraction is a great strategy in that circumstance. Other potential triggers you might experience while you're traveling, there might be lots and lots of different triggers and they're all going to be different, again, depending on yourself. So it really depends on getting to know yourself and what kinds of situations that you struggle with and having a plan for that. And do you have any advice on how we can potentially identify our triggers? It might be quite obvious. Some people's difficulties might be quite specific to certain situations. So fear of flying, for example, is a very specific trigger that you might only experience in that situation. If your anxiety seems to be triggered in situations where it's difficult to identify what the particular trigger is, I would recommend keeping a diary, keep a record of what the situation was, what kind of thoughts that you were experiencing. So it might be a thought about, am I going to cope with this situation? It might be a thought about, what might other people think about me in this situation? So it might be more of a social anxiety or it might be, is something bad going to happen? Mm. So keeping a record of the situation, what thoughts we were experiencing, how we felt, what behaviour or action we took 
is a really good way to start to identify patterns. If you're experiencing triggers a lot of the time or multiple times per day or per week, it's difficult to identify specific things. That's probably an indicator that you need some further work in therapy to explore all of that and to think about where these difficulties might be coming from. Because if there's multiple triggers and it's difficult to untangle, that's one of the times when therapy can be really beneficial. Of course, of course, because also there are many triggers that we are not even aware of. And that was actually my case. Unconsciously, my body was reacting to these different triggers, but I had no idea until I, I went to therapy and I started a process to identify them. So now every time I travel or a situation comes up, I can better plan for it. So I had this question from one of our listeners, and she asked that in case we get to experience anxiety while traveling, where we're away from home. What are some techniques we can use to ground ourselves? I know we already discussed about meditation. So do you have any other tools that we can add to our tool belt? Mm -hmm. I think relaxation is a good one. And I will refer you back to what I said earlier about needing to have that as something you practice consistently that works for you. And I, I think different things work for different people when it comes to relaxation as well. So some people will like the imagery-based exercises you can do where you imagine yourself on a beach, for example, or at a forest. Some people will like the really physical ones where you might tense different muscle groups. Some people will prefer the meditation or mindfulness type techniques. So try a number of things. And you might find that some work better for you than others. And I think that's just personal preference. If you are someone that experiences really high levels of anxiety and there might be an underlying trauma response kind of underlying that. So something from the past that is perhaps being triggered in the future or in the present, that's where we might use something called grounding techniques so a really good grounding technique is very simple you look around you and you notice five things that you can see hear smell feel and what that does is that it puts you in the here and now if a traumatic memory from the past is being triggered in the present so it's a good way to help your brain to distinguish here and now from a memory in the past because often if there are traumatic memories that haven't fully been processed they will feel like they're happening again when we experience them so grounding is a really good technique in that kind of situation if you think that's what's going on so noticing five things that you can see here smell feel around you sounds really simple can be really effective and again I think the importance of practicing that and getting better at it is a really important thing to remember. Wow we don't know what we don't know and this grounding technique is very simple but effective and mm -hmm. I guess is it because we are deviating our attention from that experience to what it is around us? 
it's really about trying to make a distinction for our brain between now and an event from the past. So this is maybe going off topic a little bit, but if there are traumatic memories from the past that haven't been processed, often those memories don't have a date stamp to say that they happened in the past. So that's why when they're triggered, we might experience a really high level anxiety when we experience them in the present because our body reacts as if that situation is happening again now so in that specific situation we're trying to just teach our brain and our body that no in the now I'm safe I'm not back there when that specific thing is happening got it okay thank you thank you for that explanation And then another question that I got was about avoiding travel burnout, because it's very common, especially during long-term travel. So what tips or advice do you have for this? This was a really interesting question. And I suppose we don't have very much research evidence about travel. You know, it's quite a new phenomenon or one that hasn't been studied particularly well. So it got me thinking about in a work setting, I suppose, what we can learn from the research in that area and how we might apply that to travel. So thinking about burnout, the kind of things that we might notice if someone was experiencing burnout would be they might feel very exhausted physically and emotionally. They might start to become very cynical. They might have a negative outlook on life generally. They might start to feel, you know, is this the right thing to do? Should I be doing this? Should I just go home and get a a regular job? So they will notice themselves progressively getting experiencing more of those things. And I suppose when I might start to see that as being a problem, would be if that is a persistent feeling for more than two weeks. So I think it would be fairly common for someone to, you know, have the odd day when they're travelling, when maybe their flight's been delayed or something's happened and they're just feeling quite fed up. Those are normal feelings that anyone would experience. I would perhaps class it as burnout if those feelings are persisting for longer than that two-week period. So my tips in that instance, if someone was experiencing kind of true burnout, would be to ask them to think about what actually is it that's draining my energy here? Is there something in particular about where I'm staying or what I'm doing? Am I putting a lot of pressure on myself to be productive while I'm traveling? And are all of those things draining my energy? Do I need to pull back on those things a little bit? A lot of the advice for burnout is really about having some rest, um, taking some time out, not putting that pressure on yourself to be really productive. If there are things that can be changed, so if someone was coming to see me in a work setting and they were feeling burned out, I would be asking them to have those same conversations with their manager about what are the tasks that are draining me and can we pull back on these a bit. And also I would be thinking about well, what are the things on your travels that energise you? 
you know, why is it that you wanted to travel? What are the things that really make you feel good and rested and energised? And could you be doing more of those things? So trying to adjust so that you're doing less of the things that drain you and more of the things that energise you. Got it. Okay. I remember once after traveling for two months nonstop, I hit this point during the last two weeks where I just couldn't move. I guess my brain and my body were so exhausted that I just couldn't move and I was sleeping probably 12 to 14 hours a day. Mm-hmm. So um, beginning into this conversation, I guess it was because maybe uh, my brain was overstimulated because I didn't rest for even a day. Mm-hmm. And I was just seeing new things, trying new foods, meeting new people every day. So mm-hmm. I guess my my body and my brain just collapsed and were like, mm-hmm. okay, that's mm-hmm. it. You're not moving anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> for at least mm-hmm. four days. So do you think that maybe creating a routine of, of course, once we recognize the things that drain us, do you think that maybe creating a routine of, okay, I'm just going to go out and explore for two days and then I'm going to rest one day or maybe rest for two days. Do you think that creating a routine like that will help? Mm-hmm. There's something there about balance, isn't there? Because <laughs> I think in your example, it sounds like actually it wasn't about tasks that were draining you. It was just that it was all full on for such a long period and then you got to the stage where your body just said no you couldn't do it anymore you just needed to sleep do you think there are any signs leading up to that that you were starting to hit your limit um I remember that yes I start feeling pain in my lower back and I start feeling a vibration on my left eye So those were the Mm -hmm. physical signs, but I completely ignored them because I wanted to go scuba diving and, you know, riding motorcycles and doing all those stuff. So my excitement didn't let me pay attention to these physical signs. Mm -hmm. It's a really good example. I think that listening to our bodies when it starts to give us those small signs that, hey, you might be doing a bit too much here. That's a good example of how actually you might start to notice that, okay, this has been too long now without a break, I need to pull back. And I think it's difficult because those people who choose to travel are people who love travel. And, you know, when you embark on a long journey, you want to make most of it. And when you're having good experiences, you want to get the most out of every single day. But We also need to pace ourselves because we're human beings and we need rest as well. So knowing that you will need some rest, everyone will need some rest time and scheduling that in. And I think if you are mindful for those signs and and you look out for when you're starting to become a little bit tired and start to schedule in rest, that then makes the rest of your travels more sustainable. Got it. It always amazes me how smart our bodies are and how they start sending signals before our brains. (laughs) I feel that when our brain reacts, it's it's too late. That our body is is like, okay, you guys, Mm -hmm. please stop. (laughs) Absolutely. And again, that's why I go back to things like mindfulness, because techniques like mindfulness do make us more self-aware and they do allow us to be more in tune with our body and that can stop us from 
getting to that point where it's it's too late. Got it. And now that we talk about this, that when we're on vacation, we want to do the most out of our days and do a lot of things. And there's a lot of movement and you're doing explorations and doing different things. But then you come back home and everything is the same. And most travelers experience something that is known as post-travel blues, which I didn't know it was a thing until I came from most of my trips. And I was just like, oh, no, I feel very sad and depressed and tired. Um, So based on your experience, how can we best manage these feelings of post-travel blues? It's a good question. I think that it's absolutely normal and natural after a long trip to come back and to feel a sense of deflation to feel a little bit, oh, you know, that's over now, and to feel, you know, a little bit sad about. I think that we don't want that to start to persist and then become low mood. And there's a couple of ways that we can do that. The first is to look out for unhelpful thoughts. So an unhelpful thought, for example, when you come back from a trip might be something like, that trip is over now and I'm never going to get to do that again. or back to reality, life is going to be rubbish now. So those thoughts, they're quite negative. They're probably going to make us feel a bit rubbish. So a more helpful thought would be, wow, how amazing. I got to go on that fantastic trip. I've made some great memories and they're going to stay with me forever. So it's just tweaking our thinking to think in a way that's more helpful for us I think in our society it's very much a we're always thinking about the next thing mm-hmm. when actually we don't really savor the experiences oh. we've had so that's a really helpful one so pretty much practicing gratitude mm-hmm. reflecting back on our experience and changing our unhelpful thoughts to helpful thoughts and that's true just it's all about being grateful it's like you get to travel you get to experience all these new things this new culture and you did it mm-hmm. for one week or two months or a year so and also it's very important to be grateful about having a place to go back I think that's something we as travelers, we wouldn't really take into consideration, but it's, it's really important to just have a place to go home that you can always go back to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So second point in post-travel blues is really about how can you mark the trip? So marking our trip is a way of savoring and having gratitude for our experiences. So some people will do that by having some kind of keepsake or memento from their trip that's a physical object that you can keep around you and really treasure and I have those from my trip all around my house and I really love seeing them they're a reminder of the good experiences that I've had other ways we can do this would be to create a photo album on social media or create just a photo album from yourself so it's just a good way of keeping the benefits of your trip alive. I think that's really important and a really great thing to do. I think in our society, we're always looking for the the next thing, but we really need to savour the experiences that we've had. The other thing that we can do is to kind of tune in to the special moments from our trip. So sit down, close your eyes, think about 
those special moments. Imagine yourself being on the beach, tuning to what that was like. Our imaginations are very powerful. And if we imagine something in great detail, our bodies will respond as if that's happening now. So we can continue to get the benefits once we're home. Other thing that's helpful when it comes to getting home after a long trip is to set yourself some kind of challenge, give yourself something to focus on, learn a new skill, take up a new class, give yourself something else that is going to challenge you and your goal. Oh, that that's uh, especially the one about the challenge. I've never thought about that. And especially you have mentioned a couple of times during the interview that our brains are always looking for the next thing. So if we set a challenge or something to do when we get back home, it's like, hey, brain, here is the next thing. So focus on it instead of having those unhelpful thoughts about coming back home. Mm -hmm. So Charlotte, now I want to ask you, since the podcast is dedicated to solo female travelers, what tips can you provide for those moments when we hit the mental lows of solo travel in isolation? It's a great question. Um, I think one thing that I would say to your listeners is that it's absolutely brilliant to embark on solo travel, especially as a woman. I think it's great for increasing our comfort zone, increasing our courage building our self-confidence but there's a little bit of a but the best predictor of how well people do um, in terms of their mental health is social support that's consistently the best predictor of well-being so if we're traveling solo it's really important that we still have contact and connection with other people so that might be friends and family from back home keeping in touch with them regularly keeping in touch with them when you have good days and when you have bad days as well so that you can be kind of fully open in terms of how you're feeling and that doesn't have to be with everyone as long as you've got one close person in your network who you feel able to be open with I think that's really important um, the other thing for solo female travelers is to somehow build a community with other people doing similar things because there are some quite specific challenges aren't there to traveling as a woman so in this day and age of social media, it's easy to connect with other people who are in similar situations. So I'd encourage your listeners to build a, a community with other people who are doing similar things to make sure that they have that support in place. Got it. So social relationships. Staying social to, relationships mm -hmm. staying in touch with friends and family back home even during good days and bad days and also uh finding a community or creating a community that shares similar interest and do you think that either having that community online or which one will be more beneficial finding that community online or in person at the place you're traveling i think that online can be as helpful as in person but with the caveat that sometimes online is 
especially social media, can be a little bit of a place where people just share the good experiences. So what you need is a genuine connection with other human beings. So social media isn't always the best place to get that. But when you're having one-to-one conversations with certain people and you feel able to lean on them when you're having a bad day, and they respond positively when you're having a bad day, that's that's a good sign that you gain some support there. So it's not necessarily supportive when you're only getting you're only getting good feedback on the good days. You want someone that's there for you on the bad days as well. And and you know, friendships are reciprocal, aren't they? So we need to show up for people when they're not having a good day. So over time we we build those reciprocal relationships with other people and that can be in person and it can be online as well but it just takes a little bit of time to build up those relationships 100 percent, yeah i'm glad you mentioned that social media you know most people just show the good and i think there is this misconception that yes go travel and you will be happy forever and actually it's really challenging especially when you're traveling for long periods of time because as we mentioned mm-hmm. you you might experience pre-travel anxiety, post-travel anxiety, burnout when you're traveling, anxiety while you're traveling. And then um, you can also, when you decide to come back home, you can experience the post-travel blues. So I'm glad you mentioned about that because it's not all unicorns and flowers when you're traveling. Yeah, and I think that's so important because, you know, traveling long-term is tough. It's a psychologically challenging situation to push yourself into that new, into new places all of the time and meeting new people all of the time. And I think it has brilliant benefits for our well-being and personal growth and creativity, but it can be tough. And I think it's important to expect that there will be bad days absolutely and that's totally totally normal and I'd like your listeners to think about being kind to themselves on those bad days and doing what they need giving themselves space and time to rest not putting too much pressure on themselves to be productive and to remember that they will get through it and tomorrow's another day but sometimes we all need some downtime when we're dealing with lots of challenges that's true. That's true. We need time to process all all that information and mm-hmm. yeah, and just resting. Um, something that I've learned lately is just how important rest is. As a traveler, also, and someone that is back home, you know, just giving your brain and body rest just to process everything that is going on. So, doctor, also, I wanted to ask you. This question is not on the questions I sent you, but I'm curious about uh, learning about how. What inspired you to create the Travel Psychologist? So really, the Travel Psychologist was created because I needed a project. So actually, I had become a little bit burned out in the job that I was doing at the time. And I really wanted to create something. I knew, if we go back to knowing ourselves, I knew that I was really energized by creating and by putting stuff into the world that is helpful for other people. And so I recognized that I really love travel and 
I'm a qualified psychologist, so why not combine the two? I noticed that there wasn't very much out there in terms of credible information about travel and well-being. There's lots of blogs from people with personal experiences, and I think those blogs can be really helpful um, because it's it's nice to hear from other people who have experienced something that we might be experiencing. So those blogs have their place, but there was very little in terms of information written by qualified professionals about travel and well-being. So it really started as a creative project. And as I started to create, I realised that there was very little out there and it grew very quickly. So I've realised that I enjoy putting the information together. We've got a few collaborators who have joined me on the team who contribute regularly as well. So we really like putting the information together and people seem to find it helpful. So it was a great project all round. That's amazing. I myself, I particularly have found it uh, very helpful. And also I like that one of your collaborators, Dr. Jill, is living abroad. So that I think that also can bring, us a, can bring a different perspective into the project. Yeah, totally. So Dr. Jill um, lives in Seoul in South Korea and our other collaborator, Dr. Nicola, is a digital nomad herself. So she is traveling around the world. Each time I see her, I, I have to check which time zone she's in. Of course, having them both on board with different experiences of travel to me really adds to the project so I'm really grateful to have them joining me. That's amazing Dr Charlotte. <laughs> so thank you so much for your time but before ending the episode I always ask my guests for a closing thought about anything so what's a thought that you would like to share with us? I'd like your listeners to know that they're unique and that what works for everyone else might not work for them so it's really important to tune in to what they need and do what's right for them that's amazing thank you so much and uh for one of my listeners i would like to get in contact with you where can they find you so our website is um, thetravelpsychologist.co.uk and we are on Instagram, The Travel Psychologist, and Twitter as well, The Travel Psych. Awesome. I will make sure to leave the links uh, to your social media and your website in the show description. And again, thank you so much thank for your time and everything you shared yeah. with us. Thank you so much too. I've really enjoyed it.